Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, the speed of growth in an economy and the rate of inflation is driven by how much money is in circulation and how quickly it's changing hands. That's the theory. Yet the velocity of money seems to be forgotten about by mainstream economists, perhaps because it is rather inconveniently slowing down. So why is that? And what are the repercussions and what can be done about it? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, if your money supply is constant, but the velocity of money changing hands slows down, that must mean a shrinking economy, right? But we've seen money supply increasing, of course, but because we've had stimulus measures to try and correct the downturn in the economy. So maybe that's why the velocity is slowing down, just because there's so much more money. Except I'm looking at a graph right now showing that the U.S. velocity of liquid money supply has fallen from a peak of three and a half times in 1980 down to about one and a quarter now. So that's not a reaction to an economic downturn or any sort of short-term stimulus. This is a long-term trend. So, Steve, if the velocity is slowing, but the money supply is more or less staying the same over time, it stands to reason economic activity will slow because we're spending less. Yeah, and this is uh, something that's been happening in America. Uh, regardless of which time series you look at, it's been happening for some time period. The most profound measure of the velocity of money is using what's called money of zero maturity, MZM, which is a fabricated time series bringing together a whole lot of different elements, of, including the, the, the basic M1, your, your savings, your, your um, uh, check accounts and so on, M2, which includes... Uh, deposit accounts, uh, money market funds, and so on. And that measure of velocity, quite mis- intriguing. I've actually just seen this data, but I'm, I'm looking at the, the raw data for the money velocity, money the velocity rate of turnover of money of zero maturity. And that, as I've known, rose from a rate of about two times per year back in 1959 up to a peak of 3.5 times per year in 1981. And ever since then, particularly in relation to economic downturns, it's trended down and it is now running at a rate of about 1.3 times per year, which means almost one third, uh, almost two thirds slower than it used to be back in the 1980s, meaning the same stock of money is generating virtually, say, 40% of the GDP that was generated out of a similar stock of money back in 1981, 82. So, I mean, that's a concern, isn't it? But, I mean, it does raise the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, is money moving slow because economic activity has slowed, therefore we're less keen to spend what we've got? And I guess also if inflation isn't particularly high, uh, then we haven't got that impetus to, to try and get rid of the money because we're not seeing it, uh, it devaluing quite so quickly. That is a major factor. And I think the, the, um, when you look at the highest velocity of money, it was actually when the rate of inflation was the highest as well. Mm. So if you take a look at the chart, it's, it's actually very easy to find. We'll probably whack it in the podcast link. But uh, it's, a, it's a marvellous time series 
stored by the marvellous uh, FRED, uh, finance, which is Federal Reserve Economic Data, FRED database maintained by the St. Louis FRED. And that particular uh, graph literally peaks in... 1981 and that was pretty much the maximum rate of inflation as well so a high rate of inflation encouraged a high rate of turnover of money and then since we were trending down in the rate of inflation the rate of turnover slowed down as well but on top of that i think a major factor has been having you know, again make a crack record whenever we've got to talk about it but it's the level of private debt and the servicing of that debt uh which as debt level has risen I think means people are hanging on to money with the intention of paying their debt down by what they save. But as I've emphasized many times in, in this blog and on the Patreon website as well, saving money at the individual level becomes slowing down the velocity of money at the collective level. You can't save money into existence. Uh, you can accumulate more of the money that exists by spending your, your money more slowly. But because your expenditure becomes somebody's else income, your decision to save is a decision to, to reduce aggregate income by precisely as much as you drop ag- your own personal expenditure mm. and given the given the level people are trying to save it means the economy is turning over more slowly which of course means it's harder to service the debt so it's one of these catch 22s <laughs> but i mean you are going to see you're going to use it as an opportunity to well you're not going to use it as an opportunity to save of course if you're not getting uh, very good um, interest rates on the money you are saving so it's it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, on the one side, you were saying, well, okay, inflation is low, therefore I can hang on to my money, therefore I may as well save it and not uh, spend it in the economy. But on the other side, presumably the uh, central banks are going to respond to this uh, somehow, aren't they, and say, well, okay, we can't raise interest rates if uh, if we've got a, a low turnover of the money supply. Well, I don't know the extent they're aware of it because... Uh, this is one of the, the dangers about being half right, which is Milton Friedman's situation uh, about the. <laughs> that's, that's my life story. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I, I wouldn't. I think it accuses the same damage to the, world, to the world that Milton Friedman has achieved. But by being half right about the importance of money and velocity of money, but wrong about how money is created, and wrong about the relationship between the stock of money and and, and economic activity. Um, it, it gave monetarism, in terms of it looking, actually looking at the money supply, a bad name. Um, it meant people were looking at the wrong ways of defining the amount of money as well. So they're looking at all these various accounts in which people put money and wondering, do we include this or do we not include that in money? Mm. Uh, when, you, when you have an endogenous money perspective and you see private debt, the change in private debt creating precisely the same amount of money because when you go into debt with, some, with a bank, it's because the bank has put precisely that much money into your bank account. Otherwise, you wouldn't accept the debt in the first place, you know, literally 100% equivalence. The change in debt is the measure of the change in money supply. And what we've had with a, with a slowdown in the level of turnover of money, I think we've relied upon a higher creation of new money which is a higher change in debt, of course, which is compensated until such time as the financial crisis hit when people found and bank, people found they couldn't service their debt, banks didn't want to lend anymore in the fear of not getting it back, and you suddenly get a slowdown in the rate of creation of new money as well. So you get a double whammy, as well as velocity having quite seriously plunged, almost by a factor of three. Mm. Uh, and then you've had an increase in reliance upon private debt going from, of the order of, in America's case, of the order of, five to seven percent of gdp back in the 1980s to 15 percent by 2007. Um, that compensating mechanism fails when you reach a debt ceiling which america hit back in 2007 2008 and now you've got low turnover of money combined with low credit 
yeah which is a recipe for a very depressed economy so so the broad money supply which is um uh you know which is m- money in circulation plus money in deposits that's sort of like what like an m2 type equivalent isn't it yeah, i think yeah. that's so that leveled off for uh it rose till 2010 then leveled off for six years and has only just started to rise again mm. And yet I would have thought that governments would be saying, well, okay, if we've got a a lower velocity of money, we need to create more of it in in order to compensate. But clearly that's not what's been happening. Because, again, you get this whole mental block about the role of government in creating money. So, you know, visualizing deficits is a bad thing which has to be funded by future generations and therefore the whole emphasis upon government policies to reduce the deficit. That's reducing government money creation. And so you, you get caught in a trap where the government is not creating enough money and the private sector at the same time can't create sufficient money because there's too much debt out there. So you get a low level of creation of new money combined with a low rate of turnover of existing money. And, uh, and because Milton Friedman gave monetarism a bad name, because his, his version of monetarism completely failed in the sense that he argued that if you drastically reduce the rate of growth of money, you would have a very rapid reduction in inflation and not much impact upon uh, aggregate demand because people would realise after a short while that it was uh, just a nominal change, not a real change. So you would have not much of a a recession courtesy of slowing down the growth of money. In fact, you had the Vocla recession, which is the most serious in America's post-war history until the 2008 crisis. Mm. And that knocked the stuffing out of inflation as well. So a combination of all these factors means that there's less encouragement to spend the money in your bank account because it's not losing value anymore. Plus, you want to hang on to it because you're trying to pay your debts down. And because there's low economic activity, you might have to further want to hoard. And she get caught in the classic syndrome that Keynes titled back in the 1930s, the paradox of thrift. But all those same neoclassic economists would, you know, would have read their textbooks and they would know that, you know, the money supply and velocity equals the price level or or inflation and uh, and GDP. The two two are linked. So they'd be surely they'd be saying, well, okay, uh, if inflation isn't going anywhere and uh, GDP isn't growing as fast as we like, uh, but we're seeing the velocity of money has slowed, then we need to up the money supply. And then but, hopefully that's going to push for growth. Surely yeah, they, the, they'd follow their own formula, wouldn't they? they? No, they don't, because partly I think the formula was, dis- was discredited by Friedman's failures back in the 1990s, and the, the monetarism fell out of flavour. And what you had, of course, was the rational expectations, uh, real business cycle stroke, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium takeover of the profession. And in that, you went back to the pure idea of neoclassical economic theory that the monetary system doesn't matter. It's just the real level of transactions that matter. If you you look at the original real business cycle models, they completely exclude the role of money. So in this sense, Milton's um, success in winning over the profession and winning over the the Reagans and the Thatchers of the world combined with the failure of the predictions in terms of what the impact would be of restricting the rate of growth of the money supply, um, led to a sort of abandonment of the monetarist ideas in general and then a return to the pure barter concepts of the neoclassical religion. And in that, that concept, people had to actually look at it. The only ones are people who talk about targeting nominal GDP rather than real GDP. So if you look at the targets that are set by the Federal Reserve models and all the conventional economic models out there, they're trying to achieve a target uh, level of inflation, a target level of real GDP, and a target level of the Federal Reserve interest rate. And what this group says, let's combine effectively the 
the, the real GDP and the inflation rate to target nominal GDP. And they think if they'd done that, there would never have been a crisis. Now, I think that's nonsense, of course, because, again, they're ignoring the role of credit in the economy in general. But they do look at the nominal GDP, uh, but not necessarily by taking a look at the velocity of money. That seems to have died out of the mainstream very uh, very much. So why is that? Why? Because it seems it seems obvious, doesn't it? I mean, this seems like a, you know, and I, I, I don't like to get into complex mm-hmm. equations, but the idea of money supply and velocity related to is equal to inflation and GDP. So in other words, if the if the economy is, uh, if you want the economy to grow and uh, you don't want to have uh, runaway inflation, then you've got to balance the supply of money and you've got to make sure it's it's changing hands fast enough. It's, well, just, be- just before, before another false formula gets, but um, my, my basic revision of, of um, Friedman's equation, this is done by acknowledging the role of credit and aggregate expenditure and aggregate income, is that it's prices times transactions equals money velocity plus change in private, change in debt, because change right. in debt is identical to credit. So it's money for money times velocity plus credit is the actual source of monetary demand. And the reason they don't look at it is because a core part of the neoclassical theory has always been that capitalism is fundamentally a barter system and money is just a veil over the top of it. And one of the hang-ups of the a real business cycle mob when they took over, courtesy of Lucas and Sargent and Rapping and all that crowd was, they argued that, that uh, people are rational as they define rational, and which includes, of course, the capacity for accurate prophecies, an essential part of the definition of rationality. But let's leave that one aside at the moment. The other essential part of it is you don't suffer from money illusion. And if you read, uh, I think it's um, Lucas's um, uh, presidential address back before the crisis hit, this is back in 2007, I think, uh, maybe maybe 2006, when he was making his quite triumphant statement about these, the um, uh, success of neoclassical macroeconomics. He argued that if you look at the fluctuations in the economy, you can imagine it being traced out by uh, movements of a supply curve up and down a demand curve. He said, but this raises a problem for those who believe in rationality because given rationality, changes in the money supply should have purely nominal impacts. In other words, changing the money supply should change the inflation rate. It shouldn't affect the real level of economic activity. And that got built into their models. So um, that was the the end of them really paying attention to what most people think they pay attention to. And yet we do have, I mean, central banks are, you know, uh, introduced quantitative easing. And the whole point of that was obviously to try and uh, increase the rate of growth and also to try and bolster inflation, which was going nowhere. So they obviously saw that the supply of money was uh, was important of the, uh, in all of this and presumably would be keeping an eye on the speed of money as well because they'd, they'd understand that if it was moving very quickly, they didn't need to print as much. Uh, if they still took money seriously, but one of the one of the essential elements of the real business cycle so-called revolution was eliminating the focus upon the money supply. And this is where the relationship between Lucas and and uh, Friedman becomes rather important. I'm actually going to search for a word to find the phrase I was looking for in uh, Lucas's speech. And um, let's see if I can find it again. Um, so well, let me while you while you're yeah, doing it, can I ask yeah. you another question? Yeah. So I mean, can we be over concerned by this? How important is it the, the the velocity of money? How 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 many? I mean, you gave that figure that potentially it was you know slowing down by forty percent or whatever it was the the rate of growth of an economy. So if there was a focus on it, would we see suddenly a a, a major boost in 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 the growth of an economy? 
We'd see people uh, worrying about it, uh, but, but they don't because uh, it's, it's just it's left out of the theory um, by the argument that, that money doesn't matter, it just changes the inflation rate, which is wrong. Of course. So, I mean, if you if you were a central bank that did realise that the, you know the, it is important to see uh, the, the velocity of money increasing because that can improve your your GDP, what, what would you do? What measure would you take? Well, this is the trouble. The only measure they've got to, to actually generate that is is to dramatically increase the amount of money in circulation. And their their theory of how to do that is wrong, which is they think they'd increase reserves or change the um, reserve ratio to encourage more lending. Uh, of course, that's not the way the banks were created at all. So there was actually, if you look at the uh, minutes of the Fed back in the when the crisis was hitting, one of their worries was there was going to be a huge surge to inflation because of the large increase in excess reserves. Uh, that was the, back yeah. in 2009. You can quote quotes, uh, particularly from Plosser on the on the Federal Reserve uh, Open Money Open Money Committee, arguing that we've got a real danger of a sudden surge in inflation coming through. That was nine years ago. Um, so clearly, they their model of, of you know this has been proven wrong by sheer experience. But that hasn't changed how they think about the importance of money. And by having this belief that money is neutral, uh, the whole attention to money and velocity of money in the mainstream has disappeared. And it's partly because if you look at how uh, what um, Lucas had to say about Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman's idea was that you could. Uh, reduce the rate of inflation simply by reducing the rate of, uh, of money creation and that people would have a delayed reaction to that. So what would happen is, literally this is where the helicopter model, uh, money model came in, helicopters would be flying over the country, dropping money on the ground. People would pick up the money, regard that money as an increase in the actual level of total demand, uh, work more and, and to try to earn the extra money, spend the extra money, and then find they simply drive up prices and realize, in fact, they're back to full run, long run equilibrium once more with no change in level of output, but there's a time adjustment to it. Now, that then, Friedman's way of interpreting that was to say, well, we've got to reduce the rate of growth of the money supply. That process will work in reverse. People will have what they call adaptive expectations. So they will adapt to the lower level of money over time. There'll be a decline in economic activity when they think there's been a reduction in monetary demand, in, in real demand. They find it's only nominal demand that's fallen. So they'll, they'll start working harder and prices will fall a bit uh, and you'll get back to equilibrium again over time. Um, now, that wasn't satisfactory for Lucas and his crowd because that implied that um, Fred Friedman's logic was to say that if you wanted to maintain a lower than equilibrium rate of unemployment, you needed to have not just a higher than equilibrium rate of inflation, you needed to have an accelerating rate of inflation. And this is where his invention, fantasy, of the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, or Nehru, came from. Now, his logic at the time was, I found a, a little aha to argue against the government having uh, interventionist monetary policy or interventionist fiscal policy, because I've shown that if they want to reduce the unemployment rate below the equilibrium rate, to do that, they have to have not just uh, uh, you know inflation caused by the government printing too much money, but it's got to print more too much money every year, accelerating rate of inflation just to maintain that target below equilibrium rate of unemployment. Now, that was a you know a, a gotcha argument for Friedman to attack government deficits back in the 70s and 80s, but it wasn't sufficient for people like Lucas because that implied that if you were willing to accept accelerating inflation over time, you could force the economy to be below uh, the unemployment equilibrium rate, if I find, you know, higher 
higher than full employment, you could do it indefinitely, so long as you're willing to tolerate an accelerating rate of inflation. And their argument was, that's not adequate. We want to get rid of the whole idea of interventionist government policy whatsoever. So we're going to replace Friedman's idea of adaptive expectations, where people learn by experience, with um, rational expectations, where they know that if the government increases the amount of money uh, in the economy, that will cause prices to rise. Therefore, people put prices up instantly in reaction to the government trying to manipulate demand. And that's that. That you know, it's all off with the fairy stuff, so far as I'm concerned, both for Friedman's position mm. and the. Because every every shopkeeper knows how much money is in circulation, obviously, and whether it's increased this. Yeah, month. yeah, but that is left out of <laughs> conventional theory. Not. So yeah, well, you know, they've got some sort of idea, but they they're aware of the turnover of money, and that even though you're being ironic, mm. they are aware of the turnover of money far more so than economists. They've simply left that out of their thinking. So uh, this is, mm. if I can just. Um, read this uh, passage was the, the, the foundational paper that uh, Lucas wrote to shoot down the old Friedman style, uh, Hick style Keynesianism to say it is natural brackets to an economist to view the cyclical correlation between real output and prices as arising from a volatile aggregate demand schedule that traces that a relatively stable upward sloping supply curve. So far, it sounds like typical economists speak, but then he says, this point of departure leads to something of a paradox, quote, since the absence of money illusion on the part of firms and consumers appears to imply a vertical aggregate supply curve, which implies that aggregate demand fluctuations of a purely nominal nature should lead to price fluctuations only. He said the only way we can resolve this paradox is by presuming that rather than agents reacting to what they learn by experience, they can accurately predict the future using what we call rational expectations. Now, once you've done that, mm. all the stuff that Friedman did about the relevance of monetary velo- money velocity disappeared from mainstream thinking. So they're not even, you won't see any discussion in general in mainstream theory and certainly not in um, Federal Reserve policy about the velocity of money. But if you look at it, it has plunged, and that's a serious issue, that you're getting far less nominal GDP bang for your buck now than you were getting back in 1980, and unless they revive it, you are going to continuously require, rely upon more money creation to give you that additional monetary demand, and if the government's not doing it, then it's only the private banks that can, and then you're back in the private debt trap again. Right, because that was going to be my question. Does it matter if, if you just keep, keep creating more money to compensate for that lower velocity, uh, what is the detrimental feedback loop of that? Well, that's the trouble. The, 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 you've got to say, how do you create that money? And that comes back to my uh, part in this debate with the modern monetary theory on trade, but three ways, run a trade surplus, uh, borrow money, which actually generates net financial assets for the trade surplus country, and that means they're creating money domestically. Effectively, but there might be black, there might be sort of the trade surplus might be forcing the, the central bank to create that money, but it nonetheless is doing that. Uh, so you get money creation that way. You get money creation by banks uh, lending you money, but of course that's zero net money create uh, net asset creation for the borrower because with the additional money they get to spend they get an identical amount of additional debt so there's no net uh, financial assets out of that the other way is the government spending more than it gets back in taxation mm. but with the with the obsession about getting that down to zero then you're just left with either running a trade surplus or borrowing which which generates net financial assets or borrowing from the banks if you borrow from the banks then you're caught back on the the credit and debt uh, loop once more 
which is where I think America is headed once more. So if there was, I mean, so if you, if you can't do that, then the only thing you can do then is to, and you can only do that for political reasons, and the only other answer is to say, well, okay, how do we increase the velocity of money? And your, your point is that uh, it's moving slowly because we're carrying so much debt. So just talk us through that relationship. Well, again, because individuals who are in debt have the higher the level of debt gets to be compared to GDP, the more um, you know, desire individuals who are in debt have to pay that debt down to service that debt. And the higher it gets to be, the more of your income you need to service it. So one of the reactions to that is going to be to spend to spend less. Now, if you spend less, what you've done is reduce the circulation of, of money and you've reduced GDP by as much as you've tried to save money to pay that debt down. And that was the point that... Um, that uh, was made by Fisher back in the debt deflation theory of Great Depressions. That the he called it, I call it Fisher's paradox. He didn't use that term himself, but he said the more debt is paid, the more they owe, because by paying down the debt level, and that's that that is actually a direct quote. By paying down debt to a bank, you reduce the amount of money in circulation by exactly as much as you paid the debt down. Uh, so consequently, the nominal GDP falls by that much. And if you slow down the rate of circulation as well, which tends to occur at the same time, then you end up with um, a reduced GDP and quite, quite possibly a larger level of, uh, of, debt, of debt to GDP because of a fall in the GDP itself. So what, I'm, what I have difficulty understanding, though, in, in all of this is, I mean, we've shifted over the last... Uh, you know, several decades from that situation where you had people like my dad, for example, the advice he gave was always save, 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 you mm. know, save for a deposit on a house, uh, you know, don't spend more than you can afford to, to, the, to the age where we are now, where it's borrow, borrow, borrow. Mm. And I would have thought in that save, save, save age, you'd have a very low turnout, turnover of money because you're, cause you're not buying anything because you're putting it in a bank trying to save up for your house. But it appears the velocity was actually high. There is actually... The, and you yeah. say, take a look at the so data. why is that? Well, what you see as well, though, and let's actually go right back. If I go back to the beginning of that time series and the velocity of money of zero maturity, back in the 1950s, it was turning over 1.8 times per year, 1.9. So this is when you are talking about your parents saying you shouldn't spend money you know, save rather than spend. It hit two in nineteen sixty-seven, and then it rose to um, let's see, it hit three in nineteen seventy-nine. So there is a tendency for turning over money more rapidly, but it absolutely peaked in nineteen eighty-one at three point five four nine to be precise, and it then plunged in the in the Vocal recession to two point six. Now. That is an enormous change when you think about it. It's been turning over three point. It's basically one rate of turnover per year disappeared during the Vocal recession. So you went from a turnover rate again. Let's look at that number again. Three point three zero in nineteen eighty to two or two point six by nineteen eighty two and by nineteen eighty six down to two point four. So. There is that the, the the family stuff in terms of your parents saying don't spend the money was low rate of circulation, but also low level of debt. Uh, we had a rising level of circulation along with a rising level of debt until debt servicing peaked. And again, that peaked under Vokla at uh, 15% of GDP in America's case. And what you've seen then the fall in the, in the rate of turnover of money has been paralleled by the fall in the, um, in the servicing cost of debt. Um, because the interest rates have fallen as well. 
And I think they're all tied together. Um, uh, and because we have this huge debt burden, we're not going to get, we, we can't get it rising again unless we get the debt out of the way. But, um, because you, you you can't actually encourage people to spend when they're afraid of going bankrupt. Yeah, unless we had hyperinflation, in which case they, you know, they, they presumably would be very keen to get rid of this stuff, which is, I mean, there is a correlation, isn't there? We look back over time between inflation and and uh, and the, the velocity of money, because, you know, which is where we started started out. Um, so isn't it's, it's, it's part of it, it's sort of like, a, I know you hate the idea that, uh, uh, economics has any any self-correcting mechanism, but is part of it a self-correcting mechanism to say, well, okay, when inflation is high, um, people are, you know, that the speed of money is 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 going to increase. Therefore, you don't need quite as much money in supply to to correct, you know, to, to get out of the recession and see growth kicking in again and and inflation decreasing. It's a, not so much a self-correcting as a feedback mechanism. That, that's the word I'm willing to use. Yeah. and there are those feedbacks. Uh, but you have to be aware of the overall system you're in to understand those feedbacks. And I think partly because Milton Friedman's monetarism was defeated by Lucas's rational expectations, the economics profession as a whole is not looking at the velocity of money and not seeing this as part of the puzzle as to why demand has been so low. Uh, and again, because they think money relates to nominal rather than real, they can't see the connection between a rate of turn to slow down in the turnover of money and a fall in the real GDP. So we so so I feel like you know okay. So that for those people who don't think it's important, hopefully now that having listened to the podcast, they might uh, consider it slightly more important. I feel as though we're not totally there yet. They are where we need to come back and explore this a little bit more, perhaps. Well, I think there's there's definitely a relationship of of, of, of some form between people's willingness to spend money and the level of debt they're in. And the, there was a while where the willingness to spend the money was being driven up, I think, by the rate of inflation. It's since fallen courtesy of the debt servicing costs. And that's quite a complex uh, web to untangle. So maybe uh, another podcast after a bit more research would be a good idea. Okay, another half hour on that. Okay, very good. Thanks for your time, mm. Steve. Catch you again very soon. Mm-hmm. I must admit, I do find it bizarre, this idea that if uh, velocity of money slows, conventional theory, of course, would suggest you increase supply, but because we can't increase supply these days, uh, because that's seen as being too expansionary and we've had that and it's not working too well that's the argument but irrespective whatever we've done the velocity of money has slowed down for several decades so what well, maybe it is all to do with debt so more on that in the future but your comments welcome too wherever you're listening to this podcast and next time on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve Keen, just the small matter of global warming can we fix it with economics join us for that one i'm phil dobby thanks for listening catch you next time Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.